The topic for this uh, weekend uh, is the practical application of the 12 links of dependent arising. The 12 links are basically an explanation for how samsara works. Samsara means uncontrollably recurring rebirth, not just uh, uncontrollably recurring problems and situations in our own lifetimes, but uh, more specifically, how uh, rebirth works. For most of us, coming from a non-traditional Asian society, we don't uh, have as part of our culture a belief in rebirth. Maybe we believe in an afterlife, but uh, not a uh, continuing cycle of uh, rebirth, which is uh, out of our control, going over and over again, filled with uh, the various types of sufferings and problems that are inherent in having a body and a mind that are generated through the influence of confusion, of unawareness, of how we exist and so on, and then all the uh, problems that follow from that uh, unawareness or ignorance. So we can use our understanding of uh, the 12 links to try to gain a little bit more understanding of how rebirth works and actual maybe some confidence about it. The way that uh, the traditional path, or I should put it another way, the path traditionally is uh, presented is that uh, the dividing line for a Buddhist practice is that uh, it is uh, intended for benefiting future lives. If it's only intending to benefit this life, it's considered a worldly type of uh, practice or mundane type of practice. And when we speak about the different levels of motivation as is presented in the graded stages of the path, Lamrim, introduced into Tibet by Atisha, they all have to do with rebirth. We are initially are motivated to try to improve our future lives, then to uh, gain liberation completely from any further samsaric type of rebirth, and then to attain the enlightened state of a Buddha so we can help everybody else overcome rebirth. And when we practice tantra, specifically the highest class of tantra, we are aiming very much to uh, stop this whole process of rebirth by mimicking the process of uh, how we die, how we go through an in-between state, bardo it's called, and how we are reborn. And we want to somehow transform the way that process uh, takes place so that uh, instead of uh, uh, our ordinary death and bardo and rebirth, we uh, go to the 
uh, our mind passes, to, gets more and more subtle to the clear light state, and then we arise with the various Buddha bodies instead. So this entire <laughs> path and presentation in uh, Buddhism all revolves around rebirth. And for most of us, because that's not part of our culture to understand or believe in rebirth, then uh, it's a little bit difficult to really be sincere in our uh, practice of the Dharma. So we tend to need to practice on the basis of faith that uh, we assume what's called giving the benefit of the doubt to the uh, whole uh, concept of rebirth. Uh, we assume that it is true. We uh, withhold a little bit of judgment on it, and then we proceed. But Buddha, of course, uh, said that, uh, don't believe anything that I said just out of faith and in me, but examine it yourself, test it as if buying gold, and only then do we accept the words of the Buddha and the great masters uh, who followed. So in order to examine rebirth, there are many different ways in which we can look at that. The most profound way, of course, is to understand continuities. Continuity means that things arise dependently on causes and conditions. And if that's the case, and we think in terms of the mind or consciousness, and that again becomes a little bit problematic because many Western scientists don't really accept uh, the mind or consciousness as uh, being something different from just a physical property of uh, the brain and the chemicals and the electrical impulses and hormones and so on. But uh, if we think in terms of the subjective individual experiencing of things, which is what consciousness or mind is talking about, then if it's a continuity from moment to moment, there must be causes and conditions which are driving it and then we have to examine, is it, does it make any sense that there's an absolute beginning and an absolute end to uh, this stream of continuity? And only by analyzing in that way do we come to the conclusion of no beginning. But uh, dealing with uh, the concept of no beginning and no end, infinity, is uh, not so easy for most of us, but something that we need to get used to, that it makes logical sense. So that's the deepest way to become convinced of rebirth, but a uh, more uh, easier way of uh, approaching it is to understand how it works. And that's what the 12 links of dependent arising explains, how rebirth actually works. And then we, under, we, we examine it 
and see does it make sense how it arises and is it something which is uh, practical, something that we can work with or is it just some theoretical uh, uh, explanation that doesn't really help us in our lives because after all everything that Buddha taught was intended to help us to overcome problems and difficulties to overcome suffering that's what Buddha was all about, wasn't he? So we always need to look at any teaching of the Buddha in terms of how can this actually help me and others overcome suffering and problems, overcoming, creating more suffering and problems. And when we talk about rebirth, we're talking about rebirth as a what's usually translated as sentient being. But a sentient being, if we look at the term, what it actually means, it means somebody with limited mind, limited body, not limited in the sense of handicapped, but uh, uh, limited in the sense that uh, this body that we have, like a magnet, attracts sickness and old age, and it gets tired, and we, uh, as Shanti Deva says, we become almost like a uh, slave taking care of our body. We have to feed it, we have to wash it, we have to clothe it, we have to uh, give it enough rest. We're constantly serving our body, which is quite a task, and it doesn't end. And, as I said, we get sick, we get old. We have to uh, relearn, if we're a human, uh, everything that we learned in our past life, you know, in previ- previously, how to walk, how to talk, let alone go to school again, all these sort of things. So this is not, you know, really nice when we do the practices of the four close placements of mindfulness in the Mahayana style of doing it, then uh, when we focus on the body, you're not just focusing, you're not focusing on the sensations within the body. That's a Theravada method of uh, doing these practices. Mahayana method of doing it is to focus on the body as the first noble truth that this body that we have is really problematic. So as a sentient being, we have a limited body and we have a limited mind. We're not able to understand things. We can only see out of these two holes in the front of our face. There's a lot of limitations. As you get older, our mindfulness and memory decrease, our senses get weaker. So that's what a sentient being is. A Buddha is not a sentient being. Buddha has unlimited body and mind. So what we are discussing in the 12 links is how it occurs and recurs that we are constantly having this type of body and mind which is generated from our unawareness or ignorance 
contains more unawareness and ignorance and generates further. So it's perpetuating itself. And then it explains these 12 links, how we, get, how we stop that. So this is a very profound and sophisticated explanation of how uncontrollably recurring rebirth works. And we can deal with it on you know, a real dharma level of, uh, yes, I really want to work to stop rebirth. But also it can help us in our daily life even if we haven't gotten to the point where we have confidence that uh, there is such a thing as rebirth. So this is what I would like to uh, focus on, is uh, not so much the uh, great detail about uh, the 12 links. These you can find in you know, detailed articles on my website, for example. But uh, rather... I'd like to uh, just give a short presentation of that in our first session and then look a little bit more deeply at uh, how do we actually work with this material in, on a practical level in our daily lives. The 12 links. We start with three links that are known as the causal links that throw, that uh, throw consciousness into future life. These 12 links are divided into four groups. So this is the first group, the causal links that throw. Then we'll have the, well, leave it like that. (laughs) So we start with unawareness. I generally prefer the rather literal translation of the term unawareness that we just don't know. If you look at the definition, it's usually translated as ignorance, but at least in English, ignorance implies being stupid, and it's not that we're stupid. We're confused. The way things appear don't correspond to reality, and we tend to believe how things appear to us, how our minds makes things appear, our limited minds which are constantly projecting nonsense onto everything that we uh, perceive. So we are unaware that uh, two levels, the way it's taken. We're not talking about being unaware of somebody's telephone number. We are talking about uh, being unaware of cause and effect. In other words, how reality works based on cause and effect, and we are unaware of reality, how things actually exist and how they don't exist. You know, understanding what is the uh, impossible ways of existing that our mind projects and believes in. This is our unawareness. And unawareness here in the uh, 12 links is talking about specifically unawareness of how things exist, 
And in the Buddhist context, we have uh, two aspects of that, unawareness of how persons exist and unawareness of how everything exists, not just persons. And here, these 12 links are a very basic teaching that we find in all the different uh, aspects of Buddhism. So Theravada, or if we speak more largely than uh, Theravada, just all the various Hinayana schools, and Mahayana as well. So the 12 links are explained in a more basic way that uh, will be, uh, will fit into the assertions of all the different schools. So here we're talking about unawareness of how persons exist, and not just in general how everything exists, specifically how persons exist, and that refers to both ourselves and everybody else. It's not just ourselves. So it covers everybody. Now, what is that... Uh, what are we confused about? What are we unaware of? What, what is it that we don't know? Definition of unawareness is not knowing something. We just don't know. And obviously, if we don't know, we don't understand either. So, it's interesting, only more recently that uh, I've heard from His Holiness the Dalai Lama that uh, the way in which misconception about uh, persons arose in India. It's very interesting. I hadn't thought of it. Which was that uh, in uh, ancient times, as occurs today, occasionally there are young children that uh, remember previous lives. And uh, when people check and so on, they see that uh, what they remember of, uh, let's say, who their parents were, where they lived, or things like that, actually turned out to be accurate. So you needed some sort of explanation of that. And the explanation of that was rebirth. Now, how do you explain rebirth? And the uh, theory or explanation that uh, these ancient philosophers came up with was that uh, there was some sort of entity called an Atman, which uh, is probably, if we want to find uh, an equivalent in the West, we would think of a soul. I mean, usually it's translated literally as a self, but it's a little bit like our soul, uh, some sort of combination of these two. And uh, that there was a soul which was uh, um, never changed, didn't have any parts, and could uh, exist independently of a body and mind. That you know came into a body and mind, and sort of activated it, and uh, used it, and then left. And then they had this whole uh, philosophy, which uh, developed from that. That. Uh, and different schools of philosophy. So some said that this Atman uh, had consciousness. Some said that it uh, didn't have consciousness and just used the brain. 
to have consciousness. Many different uh, schools. But uh, what they asserted was that uh, uh, because you didn't really understand the nature of this self, of this Atman, that uh, that caused rebirth, uncontrollably recurring rebirth. They all asserted this, and except for one obscure school, and that uh, in order to uh, and that that suffer that rebirth was filled with suffering and problems, and the way to overcome that was to gain understanding, correct understanding of how the self existed. And they all had in common the training in discipline and concentration and correct understanding. They had shamatha and vipassana, all of them. You know, the methods to attain a stilled and settled state of mind, perfect concentration, and vipassana, which is... uh, um, exceptionally perceptive state of mind with which uh, you see the difference shamatha you understand roughly focus with concentration with a rough understanding of something and vipassana with uh, you know very detailed understanding so they had these and they asserted that uh, you could gain liberation and when you gained liberation, moksha they called it, then you would, uh, that self would continue to exist uh, uh, completely separately from a body and a mind. It could be known completely separately from a body and mind. And Buddha looked at this and uh, examined it Many of these schools felt that uh, if you attain perfect shamatha and then the dhyanas, which are even deeper states of uh, meditative absorption in which the mind gets you know, more and more subtle, not in the tantra sense, but in a slightly different sense, that that was the path to liberation. And Buddha saw that uh, shamatha was not enough, shamatha itself, uh, can be filled with attachment to shamatha, attachment to these states, and so on. You still had problems. You still were not free. And so Buddha, following the same sort of uh, structure as we find in these Indian schools, said that, you know, well, this is the real problem. This is the true problem. The Four Noble Truths. This is the true cause of the problem. This is the true state of uh, being free from that stopping of this stuff. And this is the true understanding. And those who are highly realized, the Aryas, they saw that this was true. So Buddha said that uh, this type of self that you are asserting, this doesn't correspond to reality. There's no such thing. That doesn't mean that there's no such thing as a self. After all, we do have experience 
subjectively, things happening, we do make decisions and so on, but we are confused about how that self exists. So there are two levels of this. One level is called uh, doctrinally based. And doctrinally based means that uh, we were taught that you know, we existed as an Atman, as the self that never changed, was never affected by anything, has no parts, and can exist and be known independently, or can exist independently in, in the state of liberation, independently of a body and mind. So we had to be taught that. We wouldn't, let's say, the, the, you know, when we talk about uncontrollably rebirth, we're also talking about being reborn as a dog or a fly, let alone these other states of uh, existence, you know, ghosts and hell creatures and stuff like that. But leaving that aside, dog or a fly wouldn't have that uh, belief that we exist as an Atman, that they exist as an Atman. So you have to be taught that and believe it, not just taught it. So this is the... <clears throat> First level of unawareness. We are unaware that what we were taught and what we believed was nonsense, didn't correspond to reality. Now, of course, you have the uh, doubt that comes up which is that, uh, well, I was born here in the West and I never studied any of these Indian philosophical systems. I don't believe in that. But uh, we have pieces of this uh, doctrinally based belief which come into the category of incorrect consideration incorrectly think, think that something that doesn't, uh, I'm sorry, something that does change, we, we think that it doesn't change. Me, I'm always the same. Went to sleep last night, woke up this morning, here I am again. Same, no change. So we have pieces of that. But uh, what some of the, I don't know if it is found in Indian sources, but uh, Tibetan sources, they uh, say that, uh, well, everybody has this doctrinally based belief, even if you didn't uh, study it in this lifetime, because uh, following from no beginning, then we must have learned it in some previous life or in some previous universe or something like that. So everybody has the uh, instinct or tendency to have this type of uh, belief. Otherwise, it uh, is very difficult to understand how first we get rid of this doctrinally based on awareness. So that's first level. Second level 
of this unawareness is uh, automatically arising. So everybody has that, uh, including the dog. And this is that uh, this type of uh, self can be known independently of the body and mind, just known by itself. I see, you know, from the point of view of the dog, I see my master. Point of view of the cow, you know. Uh, I'm hungry. So we think of ourselves independently of the body, the mind. You know, I'm hungry. It's not that uh, there's this sensation in the stomach, and based on the sensation in the stomach, then I say that I'm hungry. I see myself in the mirror. What are you seeing? Well, (laughs) you're seeing an image. Based on that, you're seeing yourself in the mirror. I know myself. Well, or I don't know myself. What is it that you don't know? Just myself. Well, the example that I always love to use is I want you to love me for me, for myself. Not for my money, not for my looks, not for anything. Just love me for me, which is impossible. So this automatically arises. Nobody has to teach you that. The dog has that as well. So these are the two levels of uh, unawareness. And it is directed at persons, limited beings, so-called sentient beings, both ourselves and everybody else. Okay, so that's the first link. Then, based on that uh, unawareness, we get all sorts of disturbing emotions and disturbing attitudes, sometimes translated in English as emotional afflictions. but I prefer something a little bit closer to the definition. State of mind, whether it's an emotion or an attitude or some sort of state of mind that when it arises makes us lose self-control and lose peace of mind. It's disturbing. And what happens is that uh, because we believe in ourselves, you know, that me, that I'm sort of a solid entity, if we put it in very simple terms, that uh, because we have this basic principle that everybody wants to be happy, nobody wants to be unhappy, myself, everybody else, then we have that that other type of unawareness, unawareness of cause and effect of what is it that's going to actually bring happiness and not just bring more problems. So we have longing, desire, If I can just get this, get enough likes on my Facebook page or enough likes of my Instagram post, that's going to make me happy. But of course, it never does. Then we have the variants of this attachment that even if we have something, we don't want to let go. And greed, no matter how much we want, we want more. 
It's not enough. It never satisfies. But all of that in the pursuit of happiness, we think that it's going to make us happy. It doesn't. And then aversion or anger or hostility, if I can just get this away from me, that somehow will make me secure. You see, this is the indication of uh, that this uh, belief in a solid self is uh, faulty because how we experience it is insecurity. I feel insecure about me, myself. And somehow I have to make that secure. You know, me, 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 you know, independent of anything else. Me, I feel insecure. So it's disturbing. Then to make myself secure, get all this money, get all these possessions, get everything away from me that I don't like. And then naivety, sort of put up the walls. You know, denial, you know, I don't want to deal with this. Whatever it is to sort of protect ourselves, that me, that solid me. But of course it doesn't work, so we feel insecure. Based on these disturbing emotions, then karma comes into play. And that's the second link called literally affecting impulses. That's how I translate it. Uh, karma is... Not so easy to understand, of course. Buddha said this is the most difficult thing to understand in all its details. But uh, uh, there are two major explanations of it. But if we use the uh, simpler explanation, it is talking about a mental impulse. That's why I call it impulses that uh, arise from causes and conditions, so it's affected and it affects our behavior. It's an impulse that brings us into an act of uh, doing something, saying something, or thinking something. So it is compelling. This, I think, is a very important uh, thing to understand about karma. We're talking about the compulsiveness of our behavior. It's out of control. We're just acting compulsively out of habit. Sometimes the uh, word for karma is translated as actions because uh, it is the colloquial Tibetan word for action. Well, if you analyze, if the problem was action, that was the troublemaker. All we needed to do was stop doing anything, and then we would be freed from suffering. So clearly, it doesn't mean that. What it means is compulsive behavior. We want to stop acting compulsively under the influence of this unawareness or ignorance and the disturbing emotions. So karma is referring to that impulse, that compelling, compulsive impulse that when you feel like doing something, 
You actually do it. I feel like yelling at you, or I feel like hugging, at you, hugging you. That's the first thing that comes up. That's a type of desire, a wish. But then, compulsively we do it. And it's that compelling impulse that then draws us into hugging the person or yelling at the person, be positive or negative. So that's an affecting impulse, and it can be either destructive or it can be constructive in a neurotic type of way. So destructive in the sense of being based on a disturbing emotion. So that could be uh, attachment, you know, clinging, and, and then because of that, don't leave me, we say all sorts of stupid things. That just drives the other person away. Or anger, we yell at somebody. Or naivety, which is uh, we say things without thinking that it's going to affect the other person. I can ignore you. I can, you know, say all sorts of things to you, and it doesn't matter. This is destructive. And we're not talking about the action itself. We're talking about that impulse that leads us into doing that, the compulsiveness of it. Or it could be constructive in a neurotic type of way, like, for instance, uh, being a perfectionist, constantly cleaning the house. There's nothing negative about cleaning the house. But when it becomes compulsive, it's out of control. Or what's called, I don't know if you have this expression in your language, being a grammar Nazi, Constantly correcting everybody's grammar. Well, okay, it's not destructive, but it's based on me, 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 I have to be correct and I have to make everything correct. And I have to make everything clean. And of course, it's never clean enough. And so, this is also karmic, it's compulsive. So this is the uh, second type of, the second link, the 12 links. Third link is consciousness, loaded consciousness. It's loaded now with the karmic aftermath, the aftermath of uh, what's left after we actually act in a, a, a compulsive way based on the karma, the karmic impulse. And so this is a little bit complex. There are uh, different explanations, but we have what can be called uh, karmic potentials, both uh, positive and negative potentials. These are potentials to repeat the action, for example, a tendency, which is slightly different. Again, we don't have to go into a detailed analysis of the difference between these. But there's a tendency to, let's say, repeat the act action. That's literally the word seed. And there's a constant habit as well. 
only Mahayana asserts that. So if we leave it in the general way that is acceptable to both Theravada and Mahayana, then we don't have to include the constant habit, constant habit of believing in the garbage that we project. So we have these uh, potentials and tendencies, and they are loaded onto consciousness, which of course is not so easy to understand. We're not talking about something physical that is then planted in our consciousness. There could be a neural pathway or something like that. There could be a physical basis. But uh, we're talking about something which is uh, imputed. It's an imputation, not, not as though we are imputing. It's, it is an imputation on the mental continuum. We'll speak later about what an imputation means. This is a very crucial type of uh, phenomenon that we need to understand. And uh, imputation is not a, a wonderful translation of it either, but there's no decent translation of what this is referring to. But if we have the general idea uh, of it, it would be like uh, we uh, drank coffee yesterday, we drank coffee this morning, we drank coffee uh, before we came here. There's a tendency to drink coffee. There's a potential to drink coffee again. That potential or tendency is not something physical. It's not something conscious. So it's a little bit more abstract in a sense. Not abstract in the sense of being vague, but just not concrete. There's a tendency. Potential. And this is what is referring to here with the, what the third link is referring to. Loaded consciousness, and that has uh, two parts. And here with these causal links that throw is the first part of that, which is at the time of causal links that throw. So in other words, in this lifetime. So these are the three links that... Uh, cause the consciousness to continue, it throws it, in a sense, into future lives. So we have unawareness. We have these affecting impulses of karma. So you have to fill in in between disturbing emotions. And then the karmic aftermath is what is loaded on the third link the loaded consciousness at the time of the causes, causal links that throw. Okay, so this is building up every moment, all the time, because all of our behavior is based on this unawareness of how we exist and how others exist. If we really analyze deeply of why we are compulsively acting in the way that we do. 
Okay? So digest that for a moment. These are the first three links. On awareness, the affecting impulses. So it's going to affect what we experience, how we act. And then loaded consciousness. Consciousness that now has the tendency and potentials to repeat that type of behavior. So it continues to be compulsive. This whole process of thinking it over is not uh, not so easy. I mean, basically, you start by just trying to remember it. You memorize it. So you repeat it, you know. Okay, three links are A, B, C, like that. But uh, what we really need to uh, aim for is to internalize it, to recognize when it's, you know, that it's occurring. Not so crucial to be able to say, ah, that's link number two. But to recognize this ongoing process. We're unaware of how I exist. And so I feel insecure. And so I want to somehow be happy. And I think if I get this, you know, big piece of chocolate into my mouth that this is going to make me happy and so compulsively I go to the refrigerator or the shelf and I take this chocolate and of course it doesn't satisfy because later I'll want more maybe makes me a little bit happy temporarily but it certainly builds up the habit and tendency to always when I'm feeling low to go to the refrigerator And we notice ourselves doing that over and over again. And it's the first thing that comes to our mind. Feeling a little bit sad or depressed. First thing that comes to our mind is not refuge. For example, it's chocolate. <laughs> so this indicates how deeply embedded You know, this loaded consciousness, this third link, is. Okay? Now, the next set are the resultant links of what has been thrown. This is referring to the process of the development of a fetus. And referring to primarily when we're born from a womb. as a human or a mammal or something like that. Maybe also from an egg. I don't know. <laughs> so anyway, the, uh, and it's very interesting how uh, uh, we develop. To understand this, to appreciate it, we need to uh, understand five aggregates. 
that make up each moment of our experience. They're just groupings of many different things. That's what an aggregate means. It just means a group. And they don't exist somewhere. It's just a classification scheme that is useful and has been uh, created because it's helpful. So anyway, we have, and I won't give it in the usual order, but we have uh, some type of consciousness in the Buddhist uh, way of describing it. We have individual types of consciousness, mental, or visual, or hearing, or smelling, or tasting, or feeling a, vis- a physical sensation. There's some sort of consciousness, there's some sort of object of it. So we're talking about not so much the external object, but uh, what we experience, a sight, a sound, a smell, our experience of it, a taste, a physical sensation, because we have physical sensations throughout the body, then the body is included here. So in every moment, there's some sort of object like that. It's the aggregate of forms, forms of physical phenomenon. And the, the sensors as well, you know, that allows us the uh, photosensitive cells of the eyes, the sound sensitive of the ears, and so on. Then we have distinguishing, sometimes called recognition, but that is going a little bit too advanced. We're talking about within a sense field, for example, being able to, in which we basically are perceiving pixels, or to take it on a larger scale, colored shapes. How is it that we're able to put certain group of pixels, certain group of colored shapes into objects? Quite amazing, actually, if you think about it. And so it's distinguishing. We're able to distinguish one object from another object within that sense field, able to distinguish your face from the door behind you, not just putting it all into one object. This is going on all the time. Otherwise, it's impossible to uh, deal with life, with perception. So there's distinguishing, and then there's feeling some level of happiness or unhappiness, which is how we experience things. It doesn't have to be dramatic. Some level of happiness and unhappiness. We'll speak more about that later. And then other affecting variables, which is everything else. So all the emotions, all the um, almost mechanical type of things that are involved with cognition, like uh, attention, concentration, mindfulness, interest, all these sort of factors. And every moment, 
there's at least one or more items from these things going on. We can see and hear at the same time. We don't pay uh, and also feel the sensation of the temperature of the room. We might not pay very much attention to the information that's coming in from all our senses simultaneously, but it's all going on. And there's always some emotions going on and some attention and some level of how we experience all this. The happy, unhappy, sort of don't care. Something is going on all the time. So these are five aggregates. So when we speak about the resultant links of what has been thrown, then uh, this is explaining not merely the uh, arising of the fetus and how the fetus develops until we are actually born, but also uh, explains how the aggregates emerge so that we get the full scope of the aggregates, these five aggregates. So we start with loaded consciousness, the second half of loaded consciousness. You know, there's nothing symmetrical about this system, so give up. Attachment to symmetry when we study this. So the first link has two and a half, and the two and a half links, the first uh, group. And the second group has one, two, three, four and a half links. So we have the second half of the third link. So there now the loaded consciousness at the time of the resultant links of what has been thrown. Now we're talking about the moment of conception. And at that uh, moment of uh, conception, basically, just lasts an instant, doesn't it? We have the consciousness, and now it makes connection with uh, some physical substance, say a sperm and an egg, something like that. We won't get into the whole discussion of when this occurs, because that uh, even scientists have difficulty uh, explaining or specifying. But uh, that's the third link, that loaded consciousness. So it's just speaking really about the consciousness now, going into another rebirth. Then the next one is nameable mental faculties with or without gross form. So now what we have is with or without gross form, which means you know, there are these uh, formless realms where you don't have a gross form, you have a very subtle, subtlest type of form. So it's specified like that. And things can be given a name, the nameable mental faculties with or without form. So what you have is undifferentiated aggregates of consciousness and form. And the other aggregates are in a potential. So as the fetus starts to develop, you just have consciousness, consciousness aggregate, it's not differentiated yet into seeing or hearing consciousness or smelling consciousness or mental consciousness. It's just undifferentiated. 
And the same thing in terms of the form aggregate. There's only body, basically. And it's like the, speaking about the fertilized egg. And it has the potentials for the other aggregates. So it's like the fertilized egg with the DNA for it to develop into a human or to develop into a fly. I think if we think in terms of that analogy, that we can understand that uh, everything that's going to develop further is only in a potential form now at this uh, level. But it's already, in a sense, set. It's going to be a fly. It's not going to be a human rebirth. So that's nameable mental faculties with or without form. And it develops, for, that's the fourth link. Then it develops further, and we get the stimulators of consciousness. These are the um, physical things that will stimulate different types of consciousness. So this is referring to the stage at which now we have uh, the, remember we had undifferentiated consciousness before, that now it uh, is differentiated into the different senses, the different types of consciousness. And what this is referring to, and the form, the body, has developed to the point in which you have the so-called cognitive sensors. So you have some cells which are photosensitive, some that you know, will be able to uh, uh, perceive sound, some that will be able to perceive smell, taste, and physical sensation, and thought in general. So at this stage, the nameable mental faculty, no, I'm sorry, the stimulators of consciousness are referring to on the side of the form aggregate, actually, these cognitive sensors, these sensory cells, so the, you know, I don't know whether you call it an embryo or a fetus. I'm not a medical person. But uh, anyway, it is differentiated now. There's enough differentiated cells that uh, there are these different sensory types of cells. And therefore, there are different types of objects of the senses is able to perceive, in a sense, sights even if it's darkness, some sort of sound, and so on. So what it uh, implies is that uh, there's an aggregate of distinguishing is now manifest, that able to distinguish it's a sound or it's a, a sight or something like that. So this is the Fifth link, the stimulators of consciousness. Then we have the sixth link, which is contacting awareness. It's a mental factor. We're not talking about the physical act of contacting an object. That's not what it's talking about. It's a mental factor. So contacting awareness is the awareness 
of, uh, of, in which you are experiencing an object as being either pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. It's how you are having, how the consciousness is having contact with an object. You know, we had, in the step before, there were these different types of objects, and there was distinguishing some sort of objects and some type of, of sensory object. And now, starting to, starting to uh, interact with it, in a sense. Am I experiencing this as something pleasant, something unpleasant, or neutral? This is already some type of uh, ripening of karma. Because obviously while we are, um, once we are born, we experience things as pleasant, unpleasant, and so on. This taste I find pleasant, the other person finds it unpleasant. So that's clear that uh, this is individual. So coming from karma. So this distinguishing and this contacting awareness, these are in the, I mean, the contacting awareness now is uh, in the aggregate of other affecting variables. Now these are starting to become more manifest. And then the seventh link is feeling some level of happiness or unhappiness or neutral. Neutral is not the state in which, you know, right in the middle between happiness and unhappiness. This is referring to, you know, here on this level, these very deep meditative, uh, you know, the formless realms and so on. But also in general, we're talking about... uh, um, what you experience in very deep meditation when you've gone deeper than happy and unhappy. That's neutral. That's what it's talking about. It's say neutral here. So in response to pleasant contacting awareness, say with uh, um, a pleasant sound, you know, with the fetus, the mother plays some nice music. Fetus experiences that pleasant contacting awareness. And, uh, or the mother eats something which is very soothing. So this is a pleasant type of physical sensation. And then the fetus has some experience of happiness. would like it to continue. Or the mother, you know, plays loud techno music. And eat something, you know, a lot of chili in it and so on. And it's an unpleasant sensation for the fetus. And it experiences it with unhappiness. Like it to go away. To stop. So now the aggregate of feeling has uh, become manifest. Now we have all five aggregates full. These are the resultant links of what has been thrown. So it's describing the development of the fetus and the emergence of the full scheme of the five aggregates. 
from the potential that's there just with this uh, consciousness and then coming in contact with a uh, sperm and an egg in terms of being born from a womb. Okay? So loaded consciousness at the time of the resultant links of what's been thrown. So that second half of loaded consciousness. Nameable mental faculties with or without gross form. Stimulators of consciousness. Contacting awareness. And feeling a level of happiness. The names, of course, not so easy to remember. One could memorize them, of course. But... uh, try to relate it to the progression that is occurring here. That uh, you have undifferentiated consciousness and just, you know, that one cell, fertilized cell. And then it develops into different types of cells that can perceive different types of sensory things and different objects. And then they're able to distinguish things within that and then once you're able to distinguish things you can distinguish things you can experience have it be pleasant or unpleasant contacting awareness and then the experience of happiness or unhappiness based on that this is the progression of the fetus and actually if we look at another explanation of these 12 links, we can see this process happening all the time when we're alive as well. So it's a very um, helpful description of how our experience develops. Okay? So digest that for a moment. Basically, we're acting, we have confusion, unawareness, we act compulsively based on that and the disturbing emotions, builds up potentials on the uh, consciousness. You die, next rebirth, all these potentials go through a gradual process of becoming manifest. Put it very simply. And included in that is going to be more ignorance, more unawareness. More compulsive behavior. And because it's thrown by unawareness and compulsive karma, it's going to be very limited, problematic, going to get sick, it's going to get old, you're going to be confused. It could be a fly, you don't really understand very much. All of that. Okay. Now, the next three links are causal links that activate 
So these 12 links are not referring to a linear uh, progression. Again, don't grasp for symmetry here. These three links are talking now about what activates those karmic potentials, specifically at the time of death, but as we'll see when we talk about the practical application of this, we can apply this all the time. What activates karmic potentials? Very profound, really. Very, very profound. So, the first one is usually this link number eight. It's usually translated as craving. That is the Tibetan translation. Tibetan word means craving. If we look at the Sanskrit original term, it's the term for thirst. Thirsty. I have no idea why the Tibetans translators translated it as craving and not as thirst. But in any case, uh, both terms are very suggestive of the meaning here. So both ways of looking at this uh, eighth link, thirsting or craving, are uh, helpful. This is now aimed, you know, when we talk about a, uh, a mental factor, you know, something that accompanies our cognition of something. So... When we have a cognition of something, there's a consciousness, and there's an object of the consciousness. And then there are all these mental factors that accompany it, like attention, concentration, etc. So here, our consciousness is aimed at a feeling, link number seven. So... What we're focusing on is feeling of happiness, feeling of unhappiness, or if we are in one of these deep, deep jhanas, these states of absorption, which are you know beyond shamatha, we have a neutral feeling. No longer feel happy or unhappy. Gone deeper than that more subtle than that. So that neutral state. So it's aimed at that. And then what uh, to, under, to analyze a, st- a, a moment of experience, you have the object, I mean, you have the consciousness, you have the object, and then there, these mental factors have a way of taking the object. How does it perceive it? And the way of taking the object, or cognizing the object with thirst or craving, is you want that state of, you want not to be parted from that happiness. So it's a subcategory of attachment. Attachment could be aimed at anything. So this is now aimed at a feeling. So what do you want? How is it taking it? Not to be parted from this happiness. And if it's unhappiness, it's to be parted from this happiness. 
for the, from this unhappiness. And if it's neutral, it's for a non-declining of the state, this neutral state. You don't want it to decline so that you start feeling something again. So that's like craving to be parted, craving not to be, you know, craving not to be parted from the happiness, to be parted from happiness. It's not me. I mean, we're not talking about me here. We're talking about the, the feeling. Craving for the feeling not to go away of happiness, the feeling to go away of unhappiness, the feeling of neutral not to decline. And thirst, I think, is very suggestive of this. When we're really thirsty and you have one little sip of water, you don't want that to go away. You want more. Or when we are really thirsty and we have nothing, we want that thirst to go away. Have something to drink. And when we're neutral, we're not, uh, you know, not dying of thirst. You want that neutral feeling to not decline. So thirst gives us a little bit of a suggestion here of what, uh, of how desperate. There's a certain aspect of desperate desperation that's there with this clinging. And it all revolves around how we feel. And remember, feeling doesn't have to be dramatic. But we'll discuss feelings more extensively this, af- uh, this afternoon. So that's the, the eighth link. Then we have the ninth link, which is sometimes translated as grasping, but... Uh, that is confuses us because there's also grasping for a true existence, grasping for a self. It's not the same word. It's a different word. It's a word that uh, literally means an obtainer, to obtain something. So it's a state of mind that I call it an obtainer attitude or obtainer emotion, disturbing emotion. It will obtain for us the next rebirth. Why it's called that. And here there is a whole list of various disturbing emotions and attitudes that uh, can be this ninth link. So I won't go into the whole list, but uh, just speak of two important ones. One is a disturbing emotion. It's called obtaining, obtainer desire. So remember, with craving or thirsting, we're aimed at this, the happiness. With an obtainer desire, now our consciousness is aimed at the object. I feel happy eating this food. I don't want to be parted from this happiness, and then I don't want to be parted from the food. 
So it's two stages. So that's where I want to be parted from this, you know, terrible smell, whatever it is. And we can apply this, of course, to what's going on at the time of life, uh, time of death. You know, you're holding your loved ones, you're seeing your loved ones, and you feel happy, and I don't want to be parted from that happiness, and, you know, don't want to be parted from that sight of my loved one or the sensation of holding their hand or something like that. So we have obtainer desire. And the one that is, you know, really big troublemaker are the four types of deluded outlooks. There's four of them. And the one that's most significant here, most important is literally asserting our identity, which is referring to one specific disturbing attitude, which has a very difficult name in both Sanskrit and Tibetan. If we translate it literally, it means a deluded outlook toward a transitory network. Terrible term. Network is... A deluded outlook, so we have a, a wrong, wrong idea of something, wrong view of it. And the network is referring to the aggregates, and transitory means that it's changing all the time. So it's some, literally, if you look at the, the uh, definitions and the explanations, what it is like is... Uh, Throwing out a net of me and mine onto something in the aggregates. We're identifying with it. Me. I don't want to be parted from this happiness. I don't want to be parted from this sight of my loved one. Me. We're identifying with what's going on, or mine. I don't want to give up my body. So it is, in a sense, throwing out this net. I find that quite a helpful image of me and mine onto something and asserting that as my identity, my youthful body, my good looks, my intelligence. That's me. Where we identify other people. You said something nasty, so we forget about everything else about this person and just identify them with that. Terrible person. You said that to me. My friend, my, you know, my computer. Don't touch it. Doing that all the time. So this is this deluded outlook toward the aggregates, basically, the transitory network. So this is the obtainer. 
these two things, thirsting and an obtainer, so craving and grasping, to put it in the usual terminology, more common terminology, activates the karmic potentials and tendencies that will then throw the consciousness into next rebirth. And then the tenth link is sometimes translated as becoming, which I find doesn't communicate anything. And this is more literally further existence. So further existence is giving, you have this thing in uh, Buddhist terminology of giving the name of the result to the cause. So further existence, I mean, this is the result which is being given the name to the cause, which is the activated karmic potential of what's called throwing karma that will throw the consciousness, hurl the consciousness into the next rebirth. Terminology is very graphic here. So further existence, it's the, we're talking about the karmic impulse that will now because of the, these disturbing emotions of the thirsting and the, that throwing out the net, me and mine, that will then activate the karmic potential so that you will have a potential that will bam, bring about the next rebirth. It'll bring about death and then the bardo and then the conception and then the existence in the next lifetime. So you have these four divisions of that. So these are the causal links that uh, activate. This is what we will explore a little bit more deeply. These are very, very crucial because we do that all the time, not just at the moment of death. But when these 12 links are describing the process of rebirth, it's referring specifically to the moment of death. And it all is aimed at feeling a level of happiness or unhappiness. So when we practice the four close placements of mindfulness in the Mahayana style, as I said, you focus on the body as with the understanding of it being the first noble truth, example of the first noble truth is suffering. And we focus on the feelings Second of the four close placements, it's uh, focusing on the feelings as the second noble truth. The feelings are the cause of my suffering. So again, it's giving the name of the result to the the, uh, cause. Because of my crazy attitudes toward my feelings, this is what is causing rebirth with all these problems. 
So feelings of happiness or unhappiness, these are problematic, how we deal with it. And this is indicated here with uh, the system of the 12 links. Okay? So we're dealing with what activates it is, how we deal with feeling of happiness or unhappiness, then with the objects that we feel happy or unhappy about, and me, who's experiencing this. Okay? And how we deal with those is what's going to, if we deal with it in a confused way, we're going to generate more samsaric, further existence, more rebirth. Okay, so those are the causal links that activate. Then the last two links are the resultant links of what is actualized. And this is just a resume of the whole process. So the 11th link is conception, just for one moment. And the 12th link is aging and dying. Aging starts the moment after conception. You think about it. (laughs) You already start to age. I always think of it as a, uh, our lifespan is like a, uh, like a bottle of milk. You know, there's an expiration date, but uh, we don't know what our expiration date is. But as soon as we get, as soon as you buy a bottle of milk, it's going to, it's going to expire at some point. So the same thing with this body. It's going to expire. We just don't know when. That's a cause of suffering, isn't it? When we, incorrect consideration, thinking that it's going to last forever and it's never going to degenerate, when in fact it will. Okay? So these are the 12 links dependent arising, and brief. So we have the causal links that throw on awareness, affecting impulses, and the loaded consciousness at the time of causal links that throw. This is going on all the time, always building up more and more karmic potentials because of our compulsive behavior based on our unawareness of how I exist and how you exist. Everybody exists. Me, 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 and nobody loves me. This type of attitude. Poor me. And then we have all sorts of depressing thoughts. So we have this, uh, uh, these causal links that throw. They're going on all the time. Always building up more and more. And 
causal links that activate are what will activate them, the potentials to cause more rebirth, and they are focused on what develops with the second group, you know, the resultant links of what has been thrown. You know, the whole development in each lifetime of the fetus so that you actually get experiences of happiness or unhappiness. So that's what's going to activate our attitudes toward them. will activate more karmic potentials and then you have resultant links of what's actualized, conception, aging and dying. So it works like that. And when we think in terms of rebirth, these can be completed in two lifetimes or three lifetimes. Two lifetimes would be we build up these karmic potentials and we activate them in one lifetime. So the first and third set occur in one lifetime. And then the second and fourth set occur in the next lifetime. You have the development of the fetus and conception, aging, and dying. That's the second lifetime. Or it could be three lifetimes. There could be many lifetimes in between, of course. In one lifetime, you build up the uh, uh, potential for a particular type of rebirth. And in the next, you know, another lifetime, you know, some, you activate them. And in a third lifetime, you get that resultant uh, life. It would be three lifetimes or two lifetimes. This is the way that it works in terms of rebirth. Okay? So think about that for a little while. I think what is helpful about it, well, think about it for a moment, and I'll comment. So when we think about it, of course, we could get a little bit uh, 
flustered, you know, uns unsettled when we're trying to list and remember what are the 12 and list the 12. So don't get caught up in that as a first step. It takes a while to really become very fluent with this system of uh, the 12 links. That's okay. It's complex. The significant thing about it as a way to start dealing with it is to just think in terms of how, because I don't understand how I exist, I'm confused about that, I act, I have disturbing emotions, I act destructively, builds up potentials, and I activate them with more confusion. And then I'm reborn, <laughs> yeah, then I continue with, with the sources of all this confusion. And it just continues like that. This is the essence of the 12 links, which is going back to how we began this uh, talk. To become convinced of rebirth, we can approach it on a theoretical level of cause and effect makes no sense if, you know, absolute beginning and an absolute end. Or we can approach it on a more so-called conventional level of understanding how it perpetuates. You know, when we talk about cause and effect, if we actually understand what is the causal process here of making, you know, having the consciousness go on and on and on, especially in terms of continuity of suffering, of problems. And then when we start to recognize that process in our daily lives of how we're building up more and more potential because we're acting so compulsively, because we are always thinking of me, 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 and you, 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 and you did that, and I want this, and all of that. And then how we really don't handle our moods of happy and unhappy very well at all. And how that just perpetuates up and down of, of our daily life with all its problems, then it makes us think more or appreciate more how this whole process is perpetuating itself. And when we understand how cause and effect is operating with all these factors, then it becomes easier to deal with no beginning and no end. Because if it's being perpetuated moment to moment to moment by all this confusion, how could it start from nothing? And then all of a sudden, a nothing becomes a something. 
or something completely external starts it, presses a button, and now it starts. It doesn't make any sense. So through that way, we start to become more comfortable with the idea of rebirth. But we are, you know, the non-Buddhist Indian schools also, except for one of them, except rebirth also. So we need to understand how the self exists that is taking rebirth. What is it that's continuing? And of course, when we misunderstand that or don't know, that's the first link. So in order to really understand rebirth, it's not enough to just... uh, understand these 12 links that, you know, well, this is how it's perpetuated. We have to get rid of that first link, our unawareness of how we exist. In other words, you know, who is it? What is it that's being reborn? We're not talking about some static, unchanging me that can be known all by itself. I want you to love me for myself, for me. So the 12 links is a start for and, and indicates the importance of that understanding of how we exist, how everybody exists. Okay. So, although we have a whole session after lunch of uh, questions, we also have ten more minutes. So maybe, pardon, is not correct. So we have, according to my watch, which may not be correct either, we have eight minutes. Ah, that makes all the difference in the world, doesn't it? <laughs> that still leaves <laughs> time for one or two questions if you have something that needs to be clarified. But over lunch, please think more about this, and we have a whole hour for questions. Yes, let somebody bring you the microphone. So you, uh, does it work? Yeah. Um, uh, you formulate this. Uh, your formulation is like uh, uh, the karmic potentials are actualized in future lives. But would you, in addition, say that they also are actualized in the current lifespan? In the third. Current. The, current the, life. Yeah. Well, the karmic potentials are activated in at the time of death. In this lifetime, according to the explanation of rebirth. So then you would use but, a... So we could... Uh, there are two, po- two possibilities. Either we activate... Let's say we build up the karmic potential 
to be reborn as a human, right, with various characteristics. Now, in this lifetime, but at the time of death, we activate karmic potentials to be reborn as a fly. So we have, you know, next lifetime we're a fly. But then at the end of that lifetime, we could activate potential to be reborn as a human. I see this point, but uh, uh, you, all, uh, you also build up continuously a karma uh, that has right. an influence on the present life. Uh, would you use a different terminology for that? Well, this is exactly the point that, of what I want to discuss uh, the rest of our seminar, which is that... Uh, uh, we can apply this whole uh, analysis also to our daily life. So not just the time of death, but uh, how we deal with our feelings all the time. And this, I think, is the practical application of these 12 links. So the standard explanation is in terms of activating these things at the time of death, but uh, there is an alternative explanation. It's usually found in uh, Theravada of how the 12 links can occur all, in, all at the same time, all the time. I'm not so familiar with uh, that exact presentation, but through analysis, you can, you can work with that and see how that would function. And that's what I wanted to explain the rest of the seminar. But also it underlies, you know, the fact that the traditional explanation is talking about the time of death underlies how important it is to uh, die with peace of mind and not freaking out about uh, pain or, you know, I don't want to leave my, you know, loved ones, these sort of things. So that's why in the highest class of Tantra, we rehearse the whole time of death of, you know, what actually is going to happen as you die so that uh, we approach it in a uh, more calm type of way. Since we have a moment, let me point out, let me share with you His Holiness the Dalai Lama's advice about dying. And what he says is that, uh, I don't know how many of you are involved with these uh, higher tantra practices. I know Lama's teaching them, but they are all sorts of elaborate visualizations and all sorts of things that uh, one can uh, um, familiarize ourselves with. Uh, at the time, you know, that will occur in the process of dying. Solina says, very, very nice, very helpful, so you don't freak out, you know what's going to happen. But for the vast majority of us, it's too difficult to actually try to do that when you're dying. 
especially if you're thinking in terms of uh, visualizing yourself as some deity, and then you start to become confused because what's holding in this arm and what's in that arm? And, and you know, you, you, you really freak out. You know, I'm not doing it right. So he says, you know, unless you are super advanced and, you know, really are able to do it properly, far more beneficial is to die with thoughts of bodhicitta. May I be able to continue to have a precious human rebirth so that I can continue to work toward enlightenment and benefit all beings. That's the best thought for the vast majority of us to die with. Easier to do, especially if we've familiarized ourselves with, and it's not going to be confusing. So this, I find, is a very, very helpful advice because often we imagine that we are very advanced practitioners when, in fact, in very crucial moments, like when you're dying, we haven't built up a strong enough habit to be able to sustain these very complicated uh, practices. So if we accept the reality of that, then we are uh, better able to deal with death because, as the 12 links indicate, our attitude at the time of death is very crucial in terms of what what karmic cluster of potentials we're going to activate. There's throwing karma and completing karma. Throwing karma is just going to uh, uh, affect the life form that we have, human, dog, fly, ghost, whatever. And then completing karma are the uh, circumstances of that, circumstances in the sense of level of intelligence, level of, you know, anger, level of, you know, because all of these mental factors also have tendencies and potentials. And then also what circumstance? going to be a street dog in Calcutta or the pet of the Dalai Lama. So there's a whole cluster. So what's very important is the state of mind in which we die. You know, even if we haven't, you know, reached the level where we can focus on voidness of the clear light mind and all of that. At least what we want, initial level of motivation, is another precious human rebirth and to be able to continue on the path. So, we take that seriously. Okay, let's end with the dedication. We think whatever understanding, whatever positive forces come from this may go deeper and deeper and act as a cause for all beings to reach the enlightened state of a Buddha for the benefit of us all.